Jeremy Corbyn was a little-known MP for most of his political career. He's been in Parliament since 1983. But then, in 2015, he found himself projected to the forefront of the national conversation as he became leader of the Labour Party, leader of the opposition, having started the leadership race that summer as a 200 to 1 outsider. He contested two general elections in 2017 and 2019. The first resulted in a shock hung parliament. And of course, in 2019, the Tories under Boris Johnson won a majority of more than 70. It was a crushing defeat for Labour. It's been several years since then, however. So we thought at Navarro Media, it was time to catch up with Jeremy Corbyn to see how he's doing. His thoughts on all manner of things from the cost of living crisis to his successor Keir Starmer and the future of the Labour movement in the United Kingdom. You could have been in the spotlight a week ago because there was the accession of King Charles, the accession council and whatnot. You weren't there along with um, Joe Swinson. There were mm. former leaders who weren't there. Mm. Was that just because you didn't feel like you should be taking part or? I just didn't go. Just didn't go? No. Do you sort of feel like you maybe could have gone to sort of make a statement that you were a former party leader or was it just you just didn't fancy it at all? I didn't see the need to be there. Yeah. I was kind of surprised actually that former party leaders go. I understand former prime ministers, but I was kind of surprised that like Joe mm. Swinson, Tim Farron and whatnot were there. Mm. Um Every living Labour leader there was there, though, weren't they? Apart from yourself, oh, I obviously. Believe so, yeah. Like Ed Miliband yeah, was there, yeah, so it wasn't yeah. just. Yeah. That would have been quite an impressive statement, though. Somebody with your political commitments in the room with those guys, you don't think so? I didn't go. What did you think of the Queen? You met her. You, you've said quite charming things about her online. Um, I think you have to separate the uh, the person from the position. I remember once at a meeting years ago, some people started going on about the Queen, and Tony Benn said. Comrades, please. She didn't ask for the job and she does it in the best way that she can. And he said, you've got to separate out the individual from your constitutional concerns about the position. Um, yes, I met the Queen quite a few times and um, we uh, chatted about gardens and jam, chutney, pickle, dogs. Now, did you sort of meet her a while before becoming leader of the opposition? No, I mean, you must no, have, or no? No, no, only as leader of the opposition. No, I never. I've never been to a royal garden party, and in fact, I'd never been in Buckingham Palace until I became leader of the party. Did you get to meet Prince Philip as well? Yeah. So you got to meet the whole yeah, sort of retinue, yeah. and I stood on his foot. Oh no! Yeah, it was a shame. Um, because we were at this reception with the Chinese delegation, and uh, I probably spent too long talking to them. And then it was kind of trying to move on down the line. And I stepped back and um, I stood on his foot. I didn't realize he was standing so close behind me. And he said, I say, Corbin, you on, you've just stood on my foot. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, I'm sorry about that. He said, so you should be. I said, oh, okay, wow. by the way, and I introduced myself to him. He said, yes, we've heard all about you. Wow. <laughs> I mean, he must have been quite, he must have been sort of mid-90s by then. Yeah, it was pretty sharp. That's pretty impressive. It was pretty sharp. Re reprimanding you in the mid-90s. Yeah, I was, I was kind of impressed that he was so sharp, you know. And uh, a character. Uh, what are the stories in circulation around the Queen and the Prime? Because you obviously hear so much speculation. So, you know, she loved Wilson, she loved Churchill. She didn't like Margaret Thatcher. Is there a sort of any sort of stories that you'd heard in circulation around Westminster? <laughs> I've heard much of that, that she... Um, 
Well, I, I've heard differing versions, but I think they come from the uh, outriders of the individuals. Right. So there was, you know, Thatcher's supporters say, well, she really admired Margaret Thatcher. I don't know. Tony Banks always told me, the late Tony Banks, who was a great uh, raconteur and a terrible gossip, but very, <laughs> very funny with it. He was Labour MP in Newham, great guy. Uh, he was my boss at the Engineering Workers Union. He said, oh, yeah, the Queen's really with us on GLC abolition and she's putting the arm on Thatcher not to do it. I don't know. That's a good bit of gossip, isn't it? You'll never know. Yeah, of course not. You'll never know. But um, uh, so I think the, the gossip often comes from those that um, want to be seen to be closer to the royal family than they actually are. There was a line apparently from Thatcher where she said, she's the sort of woman you can imagine voting uh, social democratic. So this isn't, you know, the mid 1980s with the STP. That's apparently Thatcher's read on it. She thought even the possibility of her voting, you know, STP was just deplorable. Apparently. Well, she can't vote. So it's, well, it's, it's, it's a, a wholly hypothetical and totally yeah. irrelevant issue. But that's she, political journalism, Jeremy. Yeah. She you know? can't vote. Can she not vote at all? No. I didn't know Head that. state can't vote. Well, she's, well any, any member of the House of Lords can't vote in parliamentary elections. She could probably vote in the Westminster City Council elections if she wanted to, or the Norfolk County Council elections, or the Deeside elections, or um, there's quite a lot of choice she's got, actually, yeah. or would have had. Police and Crime Commissioner, maybe, but not yeah, Westminster elections. Yeah, that's the equivalent of a local government election, yeah, so yeah, yes, yeah, she yeah. could. The one thing she couldn't vote in, like the House of Lords, were Westminster elections. I didn't know that. And is that, Members of the House of Lords can't vote for Parliament. Was that, so they so, can vote for every, everything else. So does that apply to, that obviously applies to now King Charles, yeah, William, yeah, Harry, yeah. the whole retinue? Same, same. Wow. Mm. Well, Harry is, is presumably registered in um, California. Yeah. Who vote for Gavin Newsom? Is he a registered Democrat in California or what? I don't, That's a very good question, you know, Jeremy. You should ask him. Yeah. You might get a response. Good question. Oh, he had a very nice chats with Harry and Meghan. Of course, because you had private, almost, I think, private correspondence with them, right? Mm -hmm. What do you make of those guys? Obviously, they're in the news as well. Very interesting. Interesting. Um, Harry's life has obviously been totally in the public eye, but uh, former serving officer and so on in the armed forces. And Megan is, uh, I think, very interesting and very clear thinking woman. I've got a lot of time for her. Do you think she's been poorly treated in the last yes. sort of few days by the public? Yeah. Well, not so much the last few days. Actually, it's been all right the last few days. So they've been quite warm towards her. But um, she, um, before that, I think the treatment was appalling. Absolutely. But this is led by the media, obviously. Yeah. It's led by the media wanting to, um, I don't know why, they just wanted to build her up into a negative figure which she's not, I and mean, she's an intelligent, thoughtful woman. Do you think, because obviously the, the, one of the arguments you see on social media is, oh, it's racist. And they say, well, how could the, you know it be racist? And they trot out a bunch of examples. Do you think there was a racial component to it? Or was it I absolutely of- think there's a racial component to it. Absolutely. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, who, why? Speculation. But, you know, she is uh, a very able person. I think she's got a great contribution to make and lots of... Um, uh, radical ideas. She's a good speaker. Good, but good. Yeah, very. Obviously, you've got a career and a, a life outside of uh, oh, absolutely. marriage and I so on. I think that's what the stress is because they, well, the Duke of Edinburgh always called it the firm. And he thinks everybody should be in it like that. Mm, and she wasn't up for that, you think? Nope. 
I, that's what I understand him. Yeah. And what about Harry? Do you think he was sort of torn between the two or? I think like any any person where there's a lot of family stress, it's very difficult to cope with. Look at it from the human point of view. Um, I uh, remember talking to him and Megan about mental health and mental health stress and so on. And they're very understanding of it. Very understanding of how people suffer from mental health stress and how uh, you need counselling, you need support, and you need friendships. And uh, I was saying how inadequate the mental health services are in this country. And I also said how I think the mental health services for the armed forces are poor and for former soldiers almost non-existent. I did mm -hmm. raise this with the um, army several times, and they still rely on charities to deliver post-traumatic stress counselling or the NHS. The Ministry of Defence should be doing it. I mean, it is shocking the number of ex-soldiers who are suffering from severe trauma mm. that goes on throughout their lives. And the number who simply cannot cope with um, civilian life, and you meet them, they're homeless, they're rough sleeping. Mm. If you ask, go and ask rough sleepers you meet on your way home, how many of them, and you'll be shocked at the number that have been at some point in the armed services. And did you get to meet William and Kate? Yeah. And what was your read on them? Was it a bit well, different? Because um, obviously there's a lot more responsibility on his yeah, shoulders. William, not so much. Um, he, um, I met him in a discussion about um, environmental issues and ran up towards COP26. He was quite good on biodiversity issues and, and so on. And um, Kate, again, a discussion about mental health. And she's done quite a lot on that. And she was quite interesting. And uh, I, I thought she had actually thought about it quite a lot. You, you're a Republican, aren't you? Well, I want to sit, live in a democracy is the way I put it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is not gotcha. I'm a Republican. Mm. But what, the reason why I ask that is because we're now confronting this strange moment where I trust King Charles III more on climate change than an elected prime minister, which is obviously deeply problematic. And I, you know, obviously I'd be very worried about a, a king telling a prime minister, or oh, maybe you should do this or that. But I'd be quite happy if they had one of their weekly conversations and said, maybe this fracking stuff isn't such a wise Charles idea. Charles certainly does understand the environment um, issues, and he has for a very long time. He does understand that global warming is creating the problem. He does understand industrialization. He does understand um, the need for a um, sustainable approach to agriculture and farming, as well as to buildings and so on. And I have heard him talk quite a lot about sustainable buildings and sustainable agriculture. And I, I think he would be like you, I'm quite conflicted because I don't want an unelected head of state telling an elected government what to do. That is not right. That is not what a constitutional monarch is supposed to do. However, I'm quite relieved that his general approach on environmental issues is that he sees progress in terms of sustainability rather than progress in terms of um, uh, greater extraction and greater destruction. Mm. How do you feel about your successor as Labour leader, Keir Starmer? This is what you, you left the job now two and a half years ago. It's a long time now. You sort of mm. had a lot of time to think about it. Well, I don't talk about him as an individual. I don't talk about individuals in the party very much. I'm much more interested in the policy direction and that I have great concerns. Uh, we put forward in the 2019 election some very popular 
policies on public ownership, on green industrial revolution, on education, and uh, particularly I put forward um, an idea of an international strategy of um, peace, justice, human rights. Um, and um, well, we all know what the result of the election was. So I uh, feel that the party is not going to win an election by offering to manage the economy in a more efficient way. It is the inbuilt, factored in inequalities in our society that are getting worse. More billionaires than ever in our society, greater inequality than ever, more people living in relative or absolute poverty than has ever been. And uh, we have an economic strategy which isn't actually dealing with any of those things. So give an example, the cost of living crisis as it's now termed, um, what we've done, the government rather, not we, the government has now factored in a 100% increase in electricity prices and frozen that for two years and called that progress. In reality, it'll mean a lot of people are going to be very cold this winter mm. because uh, it's only in the major cities that people have access to gas. Most places outside cities in this country don't have gas. Their only heating is either oil-fired central heating, which is very expensive and very pollutive, or um, electricity, which is very now very, very expensive. And the energy companies have made massive profits, still make massive profits. The case for public ownership is absolutely overwhelming. And I think it's a great shame that the Labour frontbench spokespersons in all the areas where it's obvious it should be publicly owned, mail, rail, water, energy, are silent on this issue. But I suppose, and I know you don't want to, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to, to not talk about individuals and stick to, to, to policy. But I suppose you could add to that, well, look, even if Keir Starmer was saying, I would do X, Y, Z, I, I personally don't think he's a particularly trustworthy man. I mean, he's even broadcast the whole country. He said, I'll say what I need to say in order to be elected. So, I mean, that, there's another layer there, which is even if he was saying the right things on certain policy areas, you might not have the fullest confidence he actually means it. You have to say what you mean and mean what you say and carry it out into, into office. And uh, that's why I want to Labour to have a much more radical economic uh, process than it's got at the present time. Johnson actually, in his own weird way, had a sort of vision of Britain outside Europe, not as he would put it, encumbered with uh, any European regulations on rights at work, environment or trade. Um, and he would have this sort of swashbuckling approach where you do trade deals with people all over the world and somewhere or other, all would be well. And what has happened is that uh, to get through COVID, they borrowed lots of money. They've now borrowed lots more money uh, and increasingly doing that. I was proposing, yes, to borrow large sums of money, actually less than he's already borrowed, in order to fund a national education service, a national investment bank, and an infrastructure improvement plan for the whole country and public ownership of mail, rail, water, and energy, and also access to broadband. My whole pro project was to create a more equal society and economically equal across all the regions of the UK as well, which it isn't. The most, the biggest regional disparities um, in Europe are in Britain. Mm. Do you think that? Do you think that Labour under Starmer has failed to learn the lesson of why Johnson won? And there's obviously a bunch of arguments as to why Johnson won a majority in 2019. One of them, from where I'm standing, is he stole quite a bit of Labour's fire through levelling up. 
yeah. and saying to people that you're going to get a bunch of investment which you've not seen for decades. Yeah. And it, it feels to me that- He was claiming basically that everything I was saying about a national investment bank was also being done by him through the levelling up fund. It's yeah. not, but that's what they claimed. Whereas I was proposing a national investment bank and regional investment banks tied to each English economic region, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And each of those would be run by a combination of um, central government, local government, um, local businesses and local trade unions. So that you would have a built-in demand for um, investment in that area. So for example, you'd have a Northern Regional Investment Bank. Its whole purpose would be to improve the infrastructure and ec economy of the North uh, Northern region. And that in turn would lead to some kind of devolution because there would be a demand for it. It would be demand to make this bank accountable to the region as a whole. And I saw that as a step towards a completely different constitutional settlement in which you would have an elected upper chamber. We wouldn't call it the House of Lords. Senate as a working title, but you could call it anything. Um, and that all of the members of it would be then dependent on the um, political mandate from those economic regions plus Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. So you would take away the London-centric bias of the House of Lords. You'd totally take away the um, appointment system and the largesse of party leaders. I wanted to get rid of the House of Lords and create a much more democratic society. So democratise the economy, address regional inequality, constitutional reform, that's obviously all quite uh, ambitious. Do you, think, yeah. do you think anything like that will feature in the next sort of Labour manifesto? Over I would hope so, but I don't know. Um, there are still there are a lot of people in the Labour Party that do recognise that there has to be substantial constitutional changes and reform. And if the people of Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland want to have a referendum on their own future, then yes. You don't um, win or defeat an argument about um, independence by not allowing people to express a view. Let them express a view. I mean, you've said that before about Scotland. I said that before. Yeah. I said that many times about Scotland. What I did say in Scotland was that I would hope there would be no demand for the within the first two years of the government being elected for um, a border poll or referendum, rather, because um, I, I wanted to get the chance for the investment fund to start to work. On the day the Chilcot report was published, you said that the Iraq war was a war of aggression. Mm -hmm. That would make it an illegal war. Yeah. Was it an illegal war? Yes, quite clearly was. Um, you look at the statements that Kofi Annan made, look at all the analyses that have been made since then. It was clearly an um, illegal war. And uh, I was, uh, well, as you well know, very opposed to the Iraq war. I was a founder of Stop the War Coalition, which was founded actually to oppose the Afghanistan war. And um, I was there as leader of the opposition on the day Chilcot came out. That was also the day that I had the maximum opposition within the Parliamentary Labour Party because they knew what I was going to say and they knew what I was going to do afterwards, which was to um, present an apology, which I promised I would do, to the um, soldiers' families who had lost ones in Iraq. And I did. And I went to um, Church House where we had invited the um, families to come and I delivered a formal apology to them. Do you think that made you a marked man for the people around sort of Tony Blair and New Labour that you went, you did, did that and you basically said, yeah, 
I think a lot of people were very, very angry about it uh, because they felt that um, it exposed the stuff that was said about weapons of mass destruction, about the 45-minute warning threat. And um, also, it was much harder to attack me on it because if they went back into not very far into history, they'd find that um, in 1988, when the Halabja massacre happened, uh, which was the gas attack on Kurdish people, I strongly criticised it and supported the Kurdish people in that and, and cr obviously criticised the regime of Saddam Hussein. I also opposed British participation, wait for it, in 1989, only a year later, in the Baghdad arms fair. In 1989, British companies were being subsidized to go to Baghdad to sell weapons to the government led by Saddam Hussein. And so we were actually arming Iraq because they wanted to arm Iraq against Iran. And the first Gulf War was what, two years later? Yeah. The Gulf War, we'd had the Iran-Iraq War, then mm. the, Gulf, the Gulf War was 91, end of 1991, and then the um, formal invasion of Iraq came in 2003. But you think about the build-up to the Iraq War. It was um, George Bush, um, January 2002, um, message, message of the Union speech, in which he then listed these... Um, so-called terrorist states in which he included Iraq in it. Now, I am no defender of, of Saddam Hussein or the human rights record of the Iraqi government, but an invasion was not the answer. The, inv the invasion actually, as with the Gulf War, killed a very large number of people and left destruction behind. And the words I used at the very big rally in 2003 in um, Hyde Park were, that an invasion of the Iraq will set off the wars of the future, the terrorism of the future, the refugees of the future. It is not the answer. So this is from the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Yes, um, indeed. <laughs> I voted for the Rome Statute to be included in the um, in Britain. Yeah. It refers to the crime of aggression or war of aggression as yeah. one of the most serious crimes of concern to the international community mm -hmm. and provides that the crime falls in the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. Does that therefore mean that Tony Blair should face prosecution? It means that anyone that um, commissioned that war, and that would include others as well as Blair, um, should be facing questioning and they've avoided it so far. There have been various legal moves taken. They've never come to anything so far. So ha clear. how does that happen? Well, so you're saying they have to answer questions? Very, in very interesting. Um, the International Criminal Court, which I support, and I supported the um, adopting of the Rome Statute. Tony Blair was prime minister, by the way, when it was adopted into British law. I don't know what his personal view on it was, but he was prime minister mm. at the time. Um, because we, a number of us were concerned that the... Um, uh, government led by Blair would not endorse the Rome Statute. They did in the end, although there was an attempt by the Conservative opposition to exempt the armed forces from it, which <laughs> seemed kind of counterproductive, shall we say. Anyway, that didn't happen, so we did adopt it. Um, it is, It has been used against people from a number of countries, Sudan, etc. It has never been used against any European leader, save for former Yugoslavia.
Do you think that um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a war of aggression? Yes, and it's wrong. It was interesting because I saw- It you, is completely wrong. There's, I, there's no justification. I saw you being interviewed on the Times Radio and you said that. And yet still, I think John Pino was just like, he was so prepared to get irate. He sort of, I don't know, he still responded well, in a very strange fashion. His, to his iration, if that's the right word, was already there. Yeah. And um, I don't know what he thought I was going to say. Uh, and I said that very briefly and very clearly and very slowly. And he still came out with yeah. the prepared question. I said, well, actually, John, did you listen to what I just said? Because I watched the whole of the interview and I thought this is actually really measured. I thought it was because obviously it, it came, it was published at a point where you, you would no longer been leader for a certain period of time. And you'd obviously yeah. get to think about things and, you know, just mm. reflect. And I thought it was a really measured, thoughtful interview. But then you see the response from on Twitter and you think, have I, have I seen the right thing? Have I, you know? Were you watching some other interview? Exactly. Is there some other John Peter interview? Watching, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it, it is wrong. No question. Now, what will happen now? Either this war is going to drag on for years, which it could. We could end up with a sort of um, uh, phased war where there's a bit of fighting and then there's none and then there's a bit more and so on. A bit of land goes this way, a bit of land goes that way. It's an appalling situation. It's, there's got to be a ceasefire. There's got to be some kind of negotiated intervention, not a military intervention, negotiated intervention by outsiders to bring about some kind of long-term settlement for, for the Donbass. So a, a, crit a critic of that, we don't need to stick on this point particularly, but I think a, a critic of that would say, well, that means you're therefore surrendering sovereign Ukrainian territory to Russia. You're saying that maybe there can be trade-offs with regards to territorial integrity. That should be a red line. Um, but you think this is going to be a much more protracted conflict that can go on for a lot longer? At the moment, yes. It looks to me like a very protracted conflict. And the weapons that are going in are quite efficient and quite strong and so it's going to go on for a long time unless there is an intervention now what i don't understand sorry is why the un was so slow and so um unwilling to get involved um the nearest um Guterres got involved was negotiations over maripol and the evacuation of people from the steelworks well good it saved some lives. That was helpful. That was good. But in his visit to Moscow, unless we've not been briefed properly at what actually happened, did he actually raise the whole issue of the possibility of a ceasefire, of a UN brokered ceasefire, of a UN observation force? There's a whole lot of areas in between um, that situation where there was the pro-Russian forces in Luhansk and Donetsk um, but the Russian forces had not gone beyond there. And then the very short time later, the whole war and the invasion of what, 20% of Ukraine and all these millions that have gone as refugees elsewhere. And so I just think it's kind of odd. The other thing I'd say is that, I mean, some people say to me, well, it's naive to call for a ceasefire. Well, hang on a minute. Ukraine, Russia, Turkey have negotiated a grain shipments agreement. Good. Makes sense. It means the grain can be put to good use. It can be exported, which is what it's being produced for. If they can do that, then quite clearly they can negotiate something else as well. If they can negotiate prisoner swaps, they can negotiate something else. But I mean, it's not going to be simple. It's not going to be easy. But anything's got to be better than this. Why do you think negotiation is such a dirty word for so many people in the British media? Because even just saying that sort of triggers this quite surprising because response. Because they've been brought up on the whole idea that somehow or other 
a military might and military strength solves all problems. It doesn't, because at the end of it, somebody has got to pick up the pieces. Somebody has got to feed the hungry that are left behind. And somebody has got to rebuild the society that's been destroyed. Afghanistan, we went in in 2001. I don't know how many trillions of dollars and pounds have been spent in Afghanistan. I don't know how many tens of thousands of Afghan people have died or how many thousands of American or British, in the case of British, it's about 500 soldiers lost their lives. And what's left behind? The poorest, most desolate country in the whole world mm. with uh, a Taliban government that is, um, has a very strange view of human rights, shall we say. That's being generous. But even that hasn't given cause so shouldn't people just think for a minute? All that hysteria of going into Afghanistan in 2001, did it make the world a safer place or not? Our interventions, have they produced the peace they were supposed to have done? I don't know if you remember, during the 2017 election campaign, the Manchester bomb happened. Yeah. And it was terrifying and frightening, obviously. I was... Um, in a car going from Hull to Doncaster at that time. We heard about it. And we were staying in Doncaster that night. We went to this um, hotel and we then obviously watched television and started making calls and so on and so on and so on. And then <clears throat> much later that night, I got, I got a call from the Prime Minister, from Theresa May, um, to discuss it, what had happened. And she gave me a briefing on it and uh, a proposal that the election campaigning be suspended for a short time. In respect to the Manchester bomb, which was there I, any specifics given for that in terms of? I agreed to the suspension, but my understanding was it was going to be a few days. Right. Her understanding in her own mind was something much longer. Um, and so we were then, I went to Manchester the next day and went to what was a quite interesting sort of event of music and poetry in Albert Square in memory of those that had died, but also a kind of, um, this is our city, don't mess with our city kind of thing. It was actually in a, it was an impressive event. And then um, it became clear to us that the um, tactic of Theresa May was to extend the suspension as long as she possibly could. And I just said, this, this isn't going on any longer. We're going to be back campaigning on, I think it was Friday evening, three, four days later. And um, before that, I decided to um, make a statement about the causes of terrorism. And I did. I made this speech at um, the uh, Mechanic Engineers Institute in um, Parliament Square, just off Parliament Square, uh, to um, an invited audience and to any journalist that wished to come. And I made this speech. Many people advised me not to make it. Many people said this is not the time to show any distance from the government at all. Um, I said, no, this is the time to learn lessons of what we've been doing um, over the past years. It's absolutely condemning the act of terrorism and the murder of wholly innocent people in Manchester. But we've got to just think about our role in the world. And uh, within minutes, there was a media pile on like you've never seen before on me for making this speech. And that lasted for about three hours, four hours, at which point YouGov had done a telephone poll around the country, which found around 60% of the people said, I'd, I'd said something helpful and useful and on the right lines. And the media pylon disappeared by six o'clock that evening. 
Yeah, that was a real make or break moment, wasn't it, in 2017? I was advised by many people, not by those closest to me, but many others, do not make the speech. It'll cause us a lot of problems. I said, no, this has got to be said. Also, I mean, at the time... It's got to be said, and I will say it. We didn't, we didn't know the full extent of it, but obviously Salman Abedi, who was the, the central figure in that attack, had been involved with various militias in Libya, which had enjoyed support from the British Secret Service. We did so not know all that at the time. Yeah, but it was even more sort of, you were yeah. more on the nose than even you realised. Yeah, exactly. When that Not at that, we didn't know that at yeah. that time. We couldn't have done. Uh, so I thought it was the right thing to do, and I did it. Sometimes I mean, you have to trust your instincts. That made you a marked man alongside the Chill Court report. That, those were the moments. It was particularly always with foreign policy. You know, that was, I think, your leadership of the Labour Party illustrated a really important point to me, which was there is a certain permissible, permissible radicalism with regards to economic life, public services, maybe even constitutional reform. But the minute you start talking about foreign and security policy in a way that really is at odds with the establishment, you are a marked man. It, it was, is that an accurate assessment in terms of the trade-offs you could have made? And that's something else I'm sure you heard all the time. Yeah. Don't talk about this and it gives us permission to be more radical here. Yeah. I mean, there are obviously uh, a lot of people pushing various trade-offs. I think you, what you're saying is broadly right about um, international strategies and foreign policy. Because if you look at the broad sweep of British foreign policy history since... Um, probably First World War, generally speaking, there's been a cross-party consensus on foreign policy. It didn't exist during the time Lansbury was leader. It didn't exist before the First World War with Keir Hardy. And then Ramsay MacDonald, who was also actually opposed to the First World War. He did terrible things later on, but mm. at that point, uh, Lansbury. And uh, the next one was Michael Foote on nuclear weapons. Um, and then there was me. Uh, who didn't accept this um, this consensus uh, on foreign policy? I think we have to rethink our place and role in the world. We're now spending two point something percent of gross national income on um, arms expenditure, defence expenditure, um, and at a time when the real issues facing the world are poverty, insecurity, climate change, and environmental disaster. And so it, there has to be a different approach. And that is what I, I put forward. I wasn't suggesting we we're going to do it all tomorrow. We were still going to be members of NATO, albeit I might have had a different agenda within NATO to others. But it was it's all about the direction in which you go. Because is the world going to go on being a more and more divided place, dominated by global corporations and free market thinking for the IMF and the World Bank? Or are we going to look to a world of environmental sustainability and eradication of poverty. The gap between the richest and poorest has got bigger. COVID has made it much worse. And then I'll just finish on this point. You look at um, the way in which pharmaceutical medicines work, not just COVID vaccines, all others. Big Pharma controls the patents. Many of those patents, particularly COVID uh, vaccinations, were paid for and developed through public spending. And um, then those companies then uh, sell those at massive profits to the poorest people in the world who can't afford it. South Africa, to its eternal credit, stood up against American Big Pharma over antiretrovirals and eventually managed to produce its own at, um, I think, 1% of the cost that the USA was trying to sell them at. So, you know, big battles have to be fought. But trade agreements, investor protection, as well as all the other things, are terrible for the poorest people in the world. 
You just mentioned COVID. Your PM in March 2020, Labour have got a majority. What do you do differently in those sort of opening three to six months that the Conservative Party didn't? First of all, you recognise that it's happened. Boris Johnson spent quite a lot of January and February virtually denying its existence and uh, criticising the World Health Organization and threatening to take Britain out of the WHO because he didn't agree with the advice he was getting and announcing he didn't trust the Director General of the WHO. He later stopped saying that and shut up, but at that time he said all of that and took no advice from them. And the advice in January was bring in testing as quickly as you can in order to isolate people, individuals, who have clearly contracted the condition. He did none of that. There was no testing. There was no testing available. There was no PPE available. And um, then they spent a lot of money developing the vaccines. And you know, a fair, fair play to the scientists developed the vaccines. Um, but as I said, the uh, patents for those were all passed, passed over to um, uh, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, etc. And they're making a lot of money out of it. And so what would I have done differently? Listen to the World Health Organization and acted quickly in the way that New Zealand and other countries did in January and February 2020. Johnson didn't do anything meaningful until March, April. Mm. Do you think that if you I set up a shadow cabinet emergency committee on COVID um, on straight after New Year's Day in January, 20, as soon as the World Health Organization alert came out, I set up an emergency grouping within the shadow cabinet, and that included John McDonnell as shadow chancellor. Remember, we were still there, but mm. it was we'd obviously lost the election. Um, and uh, John Ashworth went straight off to demand stuff for the, the uh, Department of Health. And John went straight off to the Treasury demanding uh, the um, support system for businesses and others and the furlough system. Do you think he had a role in terms of furlough happening? There's yes, a, there's he did. He did. The pressure from John and the unions did have an effect, yeah. I'm sure of that. So it looked very different without the opposition sort of... Yeah, if the opposition just said nothing and done nothing. And I said, well, look, I'm going to be leader of the opposition until April. We're going to go on and we're going to do all these things. And we did. We also produced the railway plan as well during that period, GB Rail. Do you think if you'd been prime minister under those circumstances that basically there would have been a, a coup, not a military coup, but there would have been a political opportunity for enemies within the party or whatever to basically remove you? It's something I sort of think about sometimes. It would have been a great opportunity for them. Well, I think a lot, a lot of people would have been... Um, trying to undermine our government, but I'll put it another way. We got the support of millions of people who had the confidence and the ambition of a fairer, more just and more equal society. And um, somebody said to me when I was at a demonstration last summer, the summer just finished on um, cost of living and so on, yeah? They said, um, if you'd been prime minister, we wouldn't have to be here. I said, no, we'd have had a demonstration, but it would have been in support of the government, not against it. <laughs> mm. Mm. I think, but sometimes, because you're a, you're, you're, you like to stick to policies and you don't like to talk about political personalities and you believe in people power. So do you think sometimes that means- Is that a problem? No, it's a good thing. We need more of it. <laughs> okay. But I wonder, I wonder, does that mean you sometimes neglect, I'm sure you don't neglect because you have to work with these people, but just how sort of, you know, a lot of the cliches and stereotypes around politicians exist because they're true. 
people constantly grasping with their ambitions and they're not, they actually don't really care about the bigger picture. I mean, maybe they tell themselves that, but it, it does feel to me that basically had you a majority after 2019 with the kinds of personnel that we see in the parliamentary party today in Labour, I, I just, do you think you would have got a lot of your program done? Yes, because um, <clears throat> to be in government in 2019-20, uh, we'd have obviously had to gain seats. And uh, in many of those places, we had very good candidates and there would have been a, a much more um, amenable parliamentary party. Yes, there would have been opposition. Yeah, of course there would. But you think it would have been manageable? It's just an interesting <clears throat> you know, well, historical point, I think. You have to create, and this is the important point, the democratic dynamic to um, make sure that the voices are heard and the government is pushed, which is why I was so keen on democratizing the Labour Party to ensure there was a much more democratic voice within the party. And the same within our society as a whole, which is why I pushed very hard within the Labour Party for the Labour Party to become a community-based party and community organizing was the thing that I worked hardest to achieve. We did get it in the end, but the obstruction within the Labour Party to community organizing, as you know from the Ford and other documents, was enormous. We'll talk about Ford in a minute. Okay. Um, this is a, a, a bit more of a fun question, I suppose. Fun questions? I didn't, I didn't come here for fun. Well, these are all fun I'm going to come here for fun. You know, come on. We, we, we spoke about John Pienaar a while. What's this like a sort of pub quiz type? No, no. Well, no. It's more of an aside. It's a curious question. Okay. We talked about John Pienaar a, a while ago. Is there a, do you have a favourite interviewer in the media? Is there somebody you think, you know what, we don't agree, but I'm surprised you give me a fair shake. Is oh, you're, you're doing all right. Apart, okay, yeah. apart, from, <laughs> apart from Navarro Media. Um... No, I wouldn't say so. Really? I think it's a bad thing to start having favourite journalists, actually. You have to recognise that- oh, so Has anyone surprised you? You think, well, oh, you've given me a fair shake there. I didn't um, expect that. Sometimes I've been surprised that people have given given quite a lot of time and allowed me to answer. I mean, the BBC have this approach, particularly from um, uh, Radio 4 Today programme, the idea being that if somebody speaks for more than 20 seconds, they should be interrupted. Mm. Uh, which I think makes for terrible radio and terrible journalism, but you know it's the way they do it. Um, so I, I find that kind of thing really quite annoying and quite depressing, and the banality of it as well. You know, the banality of the questions. It's and so often they're always framed around um, X, Y, and Z has attacked you for ABC. Mm. Uh, when I'm there saying, actually, what I'm trying to talk about is why water should be taken into public ownership. Yeah. And so to actually find the space and the time to get almost in soundbite terms why public ownership is better than the privatization ripoff that we've got is often quite difficult. So would I say I've got favorites? No, not really. Do you, having been leader of the opposition, did your view of, say, Liberal media, the BBC, the Guardian, did that diminish as a result yeah, of your experience? Totally, totally. Because um, there was more unsourced attacks on me from the Guardian and the BBC than anywhere else. And um, I, my opinions of them diminished a great deal. Uh, my opinions of some of the um, 
tabloid press actually exclude the sun from this completely um, improves somewhat in that the the Daily Mirror, for example, didn't always agree with me. In fact, quite often was quite hostile. But they were also serious about the um, social justice agenda that we were putting forward and did report that in a, an effective and decent way. I also found that um, regional media, regional newspapers and regional radio in England were actually more interested in what you had to say than uh, just condemn you. Speaking of media, which wasn't the BBC, The Guardian, when John McDonnell spoke to GQ magazine with Alastair Campbell, did you have any sort of immediate response? I was asked to do that and refused to. I did not want to be want to be interviewed by Alistair Campbell. So they went to John after they went to you. Yeah. And did you have any thoughts about John doing it? Uh, he said he wanted to do it, and I said I didn't really agree with it. But I wouldn't, you know, if he if he was that desperate, he could. But I didn't want to do it. I didn't think he should either. But John and I are not going to fall out over that. Oh, no, no, it was just, it was surprising for me because I, un look, I understand if there's a trade-off to speak to Alistair Campbell because there's this giant platform that's for, it's for GQ magazine. I just didn't quite understand why, why you would participate in the sort of the rehabilitation of somebody like that for such a small outlet. But well, I went to GQ magazine to present the award to Stormzy. You were on the front cover. I was on the front cover, yeah. Nice picture. It's a great picture, yeah, I remember. Yeah. yeah. And so I went to their, uh, you know, annual awards thing to give this award to Stormzy and then um, came across uh, Piers Morgan, who <clears throat> was annoyed with um, <clears throat> me for having a conversation with Hector Bellerin. And Morgan comes over and starts sort of interrupting us and sort of poking at Hector saying, well, don't you think it's time for Arsene Wenger to go? And I said, do you mind? We're having a conversation. You've no business interrupting us like this. And he sort of says, well, I'll say what I like. And so Hector and I winked at each other and started speaking in Spanish. And how did he respond? What are you speaking in foreign lingo for? <laughs> but he went through a period of trying to be like your mate. When Labour were doing quite well in the polls, he went did, on yeah. a show on ITV. I did, and I did, yeah. I mean, he's. And he, was, uh, he was being quite. He was being quite reasonable with you. He from is what he is. I mean, he's somebody that is uh, in what he wants to do. Is probably sees himself as quite effective. He's quite a character. I mean, look, we're talking about him here now. Yeah. We haven't talked about anybody else. So he must be doing. You say in he, his own terms, he must be doing something right. I mean, he is a, a quite um, aggressive interviewer. When you were next to him, and was it Pamela Anderson? On the ITV show, I did sort of think, what the hell? I thought, this is a really strange moment in British political history. You know, I have to remember. I thought that. Because you were polling like five, six points ahead and there was top talk of potential Labour government and whatnot. Yeah. And Piers Morgan being pally with you. And I thought, this is not the script. This is not what I expected after the election result in 2017. Yeah, it was an interesting evening, that. Yeah, and was it also Danny Dyer, of course, that was that uh, Oh, Danny Dyer. The meme. What a, what a gem. What a gem. Yeah. What was he like afterwards? You used to get to speak lovely to him? Guy, lovely yeah. guy. Kind of like talking to him. Yeah. Interesting guy. I mean, he's um, somebody that um, I wouldn't say he's particularly party political, but he's quite political in what he wants to achieve. No, I liked him. Yeah. So you broke the story on the NHS during the last general election mm -hmm. in 2019. You showed the documents and much of the media subsequently claimed you were doing the Russians work for them. Uh, we found out more recently, actually, that you were really breaking a really important scoop yep. For, yep. For, a, for a story of huge public interest, which yep. is the national health yep. system in this country. And the British media totally failed to report it, pick it up. And they spent um, within 
half an hour of me revealing those documents. You probably saw the thing where I revealed it at a press event we put on and we had NHS workers with them at the time and we gave copies of the documents, all of them. We, uh, you know, we copied the whole lot and handed it to a whole series of journalists who were there. Uh, within a very short time, I was accused of being a, a stooge of Putin, spreading Russian propaganda about the future of our NHS. For the life of me, I can't understand how on earth would the Russians be interested one way or the other in that? Um, these were a very genuine scoop that Boris Johnson and Theresa May were in secret talks with the Americans over privatizing our health service and handing it over. Where was I wrong? Oprah Rose now taking over GP practices, all these pharmaceutical companies and the privatization of our national health service and our media just decided it was easier to attack me than to actually listen to that story. Why though? Because it was a huge story and actually if they reported on it, they, they would have got huge Because they knew it was traffic. a huge story and they knew how powerful and effective it would be. Dominic Cummings himself said after mm. the election, that was the time of the election we got worried because we realised Corbyn was onto something. And so the pressure on all the pro-Tory media, and I include in that all those that think of themselves of, as liberal middle-of-the-road press, was pile on on me rather than listen to the story. And when I did it, we used that stuff in the debate um, in, uh, uh, in Sheffield. They just, uh, Johnson just said, oh, it's not true. They didn't challenge Johnson, but they challenged me. That's the pathetic nature of some of our so-called investigative journalists. How bad do you think the media is in this country? Obviously, you're familiar with Mexican politics through your wife and whatnot, and you've you've travelled the world. How, how bad, in terms of global context, do you think we're doing? I think doing? we live in a fool's paradise that we have um, a genuinely free and effective media in this country. We have a media that spends less and less time on investigative work, more and more time on praise of celebrity and wealth and personal um, achievement rather than on the ills of society as a whole. And I don't think it's a particularly informed media. I think what we need is a, a much stronger independent media, genuinely independent, and also recognize that the whole platform business has changed into um, Facebook, etc., which actually are the main source of news for people. And we have to look at the manipulation that goes with a lot of that and the algorithms that send you into particular news stories that you want. I mean, some of it's quite funny. I mean, uh, I, I once accessed a, a film about the dying days of the King's Lynn to Hunstanton Railway. Yeah? Mm. Very serious issue. Mm -hmm. yeah, don't laugh, it's a serious issue. If you lived in Kingsland or Hunstanton, you'd think it was a serious issue. Anyhow, that plugs me into an algorithm that decides that all I want to watch is films of disused railway lines all over the country. You just quite enjoy that, though. I do. So they come on my phone the whole time. My God, there's the March to Wisbeach line. Wow. Here's the Northampton to Arundel line. Wow. Okay. I mean... It, that's kind of fairly, you know, unimportant. Harmless. Harmless, could, could harmless and enjoyable yeah, and yeah. quite interesting. But you figure that into a political world, that then becomes very serious because most people, I mean, you go on a bus in the morning, anywhere in the country, what people do is scrolling through their phone, reading the news they think they want to read. They're actually being told what to read by an algorithm that's worked out what they like or what they don't like or what their prejudices are. And so often, 
much of our media is self-serving to preserve the views or prejudices we've already got. You have to look beyond that. And so I do think there's some serious issues here. I also, I admire what your channel does in putting out um, interesting film interviews and so on. Same with Double Down News and so on. I think we need much stronger than that all over the place. But we also need much more cooperative working together of all the independent groups, not just in this country, but, but around the world, because there is a big um, demand around the world for genuinely independent media. I mean, where were you reading about the Indian farmers, for example? It's so true. Around the world. Mm. The Indian farmers, biggest industrial strike ever in global history. The only paper that reported it was the Morning Star. Mm. No, I support the Morning Star. Bless the Morning Star, but it's not a major circulation paper. Um, the Morning Star, actually, a lot of in terms of original new news gathering, which you were criticising before, I think yeah. justifiably with the British yeah. media. Morning Star, if you, even, if, even if you don't like the left or whatever, if you just want to get you know yeah. regular original stories, it's a great place to go, actually. Yeah. Absolutely, because they do um, dig around and find stuff despite their very limited resources mm. to do it. And so I do think we've got to think much more seriously about the media. And I did notice that after I made the McTaggart lecture um, about reform of journalism, Levison 2, right of reply, ending multiplicity ownership, etc., etc., the particularly the Murdoch media became much more hostile towards me. I bet. Because they realized I was... Very serious about media reform. I bet. When was that? Because that's, of course, the lecture that Emily Maitlis recently gave. So that was in 2018, was I it? I gave it in 2018, the McTaggart lecture, yeah. I gave it then, yeah. Do you, can you sort of pinpoint when the media became particularly bad? Because I think, obviously, you have Murdoch first coming to this country in, what, 68, 69 with the News of the World. But it feels like, even until the 1970s, the Daily Mirror was the biggest by circulation. You might get... Um, John Pilger writing for the Daily Mirror. You know, it's quite strange. Well, you had, I, yeah, you had Paul Foote. You had John Pilger. Yeah. I mean, John. I remember John Pilger writing for the Mirror in the uh, early 70s. Yeah. Indeed, in the 1974 general elections, both of them, John Pilger was quite an important voice. And the stuff he was doing about poverty, about homelessness and so on was amazing. Paul Foote later, much later, became a columnist for the Mirror and was very, very effective. So the Mirror was a big voice. But... As you quite rightly say, in the 70s, the Daily Mirror was the largest circulation uh, uh, paper in the country. Later, the Sun overtook it, and, the, and Murdoch just reduced our media to uh, a competition on um, populism, which is very, very dangerous. And then he bought the Times. You remember the Times dispute, which went on for the longest journalist strike in history? I was there outside the Times office. Indeed, I've still got a mug at home from that particular strike. And so when Murdoch took over the Times and the Sun, um, and then later Sky, it gave him a massive platform in this country. And since then, his um, actions and spirit has had a huge effect on British politics. Remember when Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party, he went off to Australia for a weekend conference with uh, Rupert Murdoch, mm. which I condemned at the time. Isn't he godfather to Murdoch's, one of Murdoch's children? I believe so. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, Alistair Campbell. I'm not a godfather to anybody. Are you not? I'm surprised. You make a good godfather, I think. You reckon? Quite a responsible chair. Well, yeah, generally that's what you want, right? Law-abiding, responsible person, you know. 
if the, your child one day needs to stay with somebody for a week or two, they can stay with their godparent. You know, you never know what's going to happen. We look after lots of <laughs> lots of wider families, kids. It's yeah. yeah. I'll keep you in mind, Jeremy. If, uh, You'll bear me in mind. We look for a good guy. Yeah, we'll look if I have any children with my okay. wife anytime soon. So let let me know. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, would you trust me with their religious upbringing? Probably. Oh, that's true. I'm because I'm a Catholic. But you're. You're atheist, I presume, right? Um, agnostic. agnostic. Um, I believe in diversity and in, in faith. I think people, it's very important that young people are brought up understanding the importance of faith, respect it, and the diversity of faith and religion. So respect Judaism, respect Islam, respect Christianity in all its forms. Agnostic. So what are you then? Are you sort of like a, th- a theist? Do you sort of have moments where you, you sort of engage with the sublime? <laughs> What's the... <laughs> Sufist. No, it's understanding our place in the world and our place in the universe. But you're not an atheist. I mean, because you 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 know your views on things. So I'm surprised you didn't say. I didn't think. I didn't know what you were. But the fact you're saying agnostic well, means what controls our lives and our world: the sun, the moon, stars. Mm. What controls our environment? The effect of that on the world. I mean, just think about the sort of. It's very interesting uh, the wider powers and what the West arrogantly uh, dismiss as primitive religions actually talk often about the sun. Zaro- Maybe you're a Zoroastrian. Zoroastrian. Yeah. I th- I find if I I never done a university degree, but if I was doing one now, I'd either do one in history or on theology. That's a good little scoop, isn't it? Not because I have any particularly strong religious views, but because I find faith and the adherence to faith absolutely fascinating. And also the similarities between most faiths are enormous. Mm. The differences are often exaggerated. The similarities are huge. Mm. If you read the Torah, read the Bible, read the Old Testament, read the New Testament, is it that different? No. Is the Quran that different? Well, no, well, Prince Charles said precisely this, didn't he? he said the Quran is a wonderful document. He's, I mean, again, that's that's interesting. That he is very interesting on uh, understanding uh, a multi-faith society. Yeah, and I, more so than most Tories. I mean, oh, not, so. not all I of them. But listening to him talk about this, I mean, he actually does understand quite a lot about a multi-faith society and Buddhism, Hinduism, and the Western religions as well. For, so, for somebody. With that mindset, the attacks you would have over anti-Semitism, that must have really hurt you then. Because you clearly, you're saying that from the heart. Disgusting, outrageous, and disgraceful. Um, Listen, I'm an anti-racist. That's my life. That's always been my life and will always be my life. But do you think think that that was... There was there were anti-Semites in the Labour Party. There was documented evidence of it, etc., etc., etc. I'm not going to make all these caveats because we've said it many times in the media. I think we've been, we've covered the story. I think pretty well. But do you think that that was leveraged by certain interests within the Labour Party in particular because they knew it would hurt you personally because you were somebody who said I'm an anti-racist. You just said you would do a degree in you know theology or. People used anything to attack me, including that, which is outrageous and disgusting. I was the one that clamped down on any racism in the party. Very hard. Clamped down it by new processes, by investigations. So said, look, racism has no place. The 99% of Labour Party members are great people mm. with no racist bones in their body whatsoever. Um, people that practice any form of racism, use any racist language, not acceptable. Either educate them, which is what Chakrabarti's report said, crucially, mm. bring in education. Um, or if they are serious racists, then you don't want them in the party at all. 
of any sort, be it anti-Semitic, Islamophobic, anti-black, anti-Asian, whatever it happens to be. So the Ford report, which was commissioned by Keir Starmer, Jenny Formby, so it's the General Secretary prior to the President, I believe. No, it was um, commissioned... Uh, Jenny Formby had left by that She'd time. She'd left. Yeah, I think it was commissioned by uh, Starmer and David Evans. So it's entirely Starmer's crew. Yeah. It sort of under underscores the point even more then. The Ford report is commissioned in response to this story which Navarra helps break about labour leaks. There's that document which shows a, a great deal of, I think I think actually the Ford report refers to it as prejudicial thinking. I can't remember. There was clear evidence of, of, of prejudice at the top of the Labour Party with regards to certain minorities. How do you think the Ford report has been taken by the Labour leadership? Do you think they've sort of embraced it properly or they've no, not? No, they haven't. Nobody seems to have embraced it properly within the um, ruling group in the Labour Party any sooner anywhere else. They've had a discussion about it, I believe. They're going to have a further discussion, I believe, at conference. But I think the Ford report is interesting. I don't accept it all. Anybody, Nobody would accept all of everything. But I think the general tenor of the report indicates exactly what I was up against and what was going on within the party. We are having an analysis session on the Ford report on the Saturday of Labour Party conference at the World Transformed. I think it's three o'clock in the afternoon. Has, has the response from the Labour leadership surprised you? Because obviously they've commissioned this report. It's taken years to publish and then they've barely Well, they commissioned the report and promised it would be out in a short marching time. And it took uh, two years to come out. Mm. And it, it finally came out and, then it, and now has been discussed and analysed. I want action taken on it. What kind of action? Well, uh, against those people that um, did what they did over Ergen House, for example, during the 2017 election. I knew absolutely nothing about that whatsoever. So this is the parallel yeah. funding structure yeah, during a campaign? Absolutely. I knew absolutely nothing about that at all. Nobody nobody thought fit to tell me or any of my team. The whole thing was done as an act of subterfuge. So we had um, we we broke that story, like I say, the Labour League mm. story mm. again. <laughs> you wouldn't know it from the media. No, I've even mentioned us, I think, even though it solicited this report from, you know, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, the Ford report. And in that, well, these WhatsApp messages from people around the former General Secretary Ian McNichol, mm. his 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 retinue, people in the General Secretary's office, um, a lady who now works at Unison, um, Emily Oldno. Yeah. She was touted actually as a potential. Um, General Secretary under Starmer for the Labour Party. Did you not have an inkling of of their sort of I of, knew, of how they were referring to the campaign and and what they were you know speculating I knew about? of the criticisms that people were making of the direction in which the campaign was taken and being run. Ian Lavery knew that. John McDonnell knew that. John Trickett knew that. And we obviously tried to push back against it. But remember, I had only been re-elected leader of the Labour Party in September 2016. The general election came, announced of it in April 2017, not that long later. Um, and um, when all those, that leaked report came out, what shocked me was the racist remarks made against Diane Abbott, against Dawn Butler, and a number of other black women, particularly black women, uh, was made in in those um, conversations that were released. Utterly disgusting and outrageous stuff. And so the Afrophobia issue in the party is there as well. Mm. 
But it's not being taken seriously by the... Well, it's got to be taken seriously, and that's why we're holding this event at conference. Proportional representation. Yes. I, I feel like you could have won a lot of friends amongst those who were critical of you. Uh, let's call them, you know, I like to call them libs. But like Liberal Democrats, maybe swing Liberal Democrat Labour voters, they might have voted Cameron in 2010. Those kinds of people who are actually quite passionate about Bush representation. And that was congruent with your your program of democratising the British constitution. But of course, you had a constitutional convention. You said maybe that would be a part of it, but it was never explicit, explicit. I mean, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. Do you think maybe that was a bit of an error, that if you'd sort of gone a bit bigger on electoral reform, you could have won over some of those naysayers? The political activists and classes chat quite a lot about proportional representation. Um, in all my lifetime of knocking on doors for various candidates, including myself, hardly anybody raises that as an issue that they're concerned about. It's not something that rolls of everybody's tongue all the time. I'm not saying it shouldn't, but it, that, <coughs> it, that, is, yeah. that, is, that is it. Um, what I wanted was a constitutional convention that looked at the totality of issues, including the um, power of the House of Lords and crucially, bringing the royal prerogative, which is held by the prime minister, a subject to parliamentary scrutiny so that the, the prime minister wouldn't have the royal prerogative to make huge decisions and bypass parliament. Um, until um, Iraq war, there was never a vote on any British involvement in military action anywhere in the world. We forced that during the debates on Iraq war. And so it's kind of unthinkable that there would now be a uh, major deployment of British troops without a vote of the House of Commons, as I experienced during the whole issues mm. about bombing in Syria. Um, as to your point on proportional representation, two things. One is that I think the constituency link of an MP <coughs> to an area is an important one. And if you go to uh, a pure PR regional list system, or in some countries, national list system, what you do is actually strengthen the role of the party machine and the party caucus in how the MP behaves, whether we're selected or what they do, rather than the popular involvement. And so I would be prepared to look at quite seriously a combination of constituency elected MPs and to ensure a fairness of balance, a um, regional um, top-up system which levels out the, the party votes. That would be a form of PR which would um, bring in a fair result. But you've got to also be cautious. PR doesn't necessarily deliver everything you want. It would also bring the far right into into parliamentary politics. They would get elected as a result of it, on unless you had a, a high enough threshold of say ten percent or something like that. But you've got you've got to sometimes be careful what you wish for. And so, did I want to rush into that? No, because I also wanted to take the party and others with us. And the last time the Labour Party voted on PR, basically, as I recall it, most constituencies. Constituent Labour parties support PR. Very few unions do. They see the argument in favour of, um, they say it leads to unstable government. We've had lots of unstable governments <laughs> more recently, so I think that argument sort of died away. Uh, no, I'm not opposed to it, but I just say don't break the community link and the accountability that an MP should have with their community. It's interesting you say that, oh, you know, um you hadn't heard it on the doorstep, which I, mean, I, thought, I, I can Have you ever heard it on the doorstep? I can entirely believe that. But what was, yeah, but what was interesting, it's one of those issues which the voters, the voters don't really care about it. The pundits do. 
and it was it was the liberal pundits who were yeah. often in your ear and giving you a hard time. Yeah, and you as an act of sort of political management, I think most politicians, and I think. This speaks well of you. I don't think it's a criticism of you, but I think somebody like Keir Starmer will say, well, if we press that switch and that'll shut those people up and we can you know, transactionally win those people over, but you weren't willing to do that. No. I wanted to try and set an agenda which was about social justice, was about equality, and was about the kind of society we want to create and empower people whose voices are never heard. The um, liberal pundits and liberal media are not very interested in empowering the poorest people in our society. I am. Do you think less of those kinds of people having been the leader of the opposition for four or five years? It depends, obviously- it depends how much I thought of them before. So you were under no <laughs> illusions before 2015? No. No, um, no I mean, I've been in Parliament a very long time and obviously have had dealings with all of these people. Listen, I remember the um, build-up to both the Afghan war and the Iraq war. When we were pointing out the weapons of mass destruction probably didn't exist, mm. and it was later proved they clearly did not exist. Where were most of the media on this? And once the war had started, pretty well all of the papers were cheerleaders for it. Mm. And uh, there's something, Dennis Skinner used to put it very well. He said, you all sit here in parliament on these green benches, and you're very happy to vote for other people's sons and daughters to be killed. Mm. With the, with the Guardian, sticking with the liberal media, do you feel like they're very happy to support radical policies as long as they can't be implemented? So like right now, they're calling for the exact same sorts of things that you were proposing as leader of the opposition in 2017, 2019. They were poo-pooing it. But now that you've got a Tory majority of 80, 90, yeah. they can- They, they can were saying s- all that I put forward was unaffordable and, uh, and interesting, but not, not doable. They're now supporting all of that. I mean, where is the case against public ownership of the natural monopolies? There's only one wire goes into your house with electricity, one pipe with water, one pipe to take the sewage out, one letterbox. Yeah. So why on earth should you pretend there's going to be competition in that? There can't be. There cannot be competition in the delivery of a, non- a monopoly. And so the idea that somewhere or other there's a competitive service, look, look at this ripoff of electricity companies. For example, publicly owned electricity, which Macron, no socialist, no great left winger, his government is bringing EDF back into full public ownership because they're fed up with the profiteering. The um, the head of the Environment Agency said that CEOs of privately owned water companies should face jail time effectively if they yeah, keep I on breaking the quoted, law. Um, I quoted the Environment Agency in Parliament to, yeah. to the minister. I said, well, what's your answer to this? And they said it was very interesting. It is very interesting. But when the Environment Agency, a government-appointed commission to protect our natural world and environment, says that the CEOs of the water company should go to prison, (laughs) uh, and the CEOs of the water company is extremely well paid. I mean, I'm sure they work very hard, but the CEO of Thames Water must work extraordinarily hard to be worth £2 million a year. Yeah. Really hard, really, really hard. Yeah, and they've got second jobs, many of them, of course. Uh. Well, they've got they work so hard, they've got time to give themselves time for another directorship. So it's this is bonkers. This is bonkers. Our water industry, infrastructure built by public subscription, public investment of local authorities. Look at Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, London, all those places that developed 
clean, good quality water for their people. All that infrastructure flogged off in uh, under Thatcher and Major. And then what did they do? Asset strip the land. And then as the minister last week uh, in parliament said, admitted to me when I intervened on this again on sewage issues, said, well, maybe it was a bad idea for us to um, uh, remove the idea that they were only there as temporarily running water and it would be subject to a license they'd have to reapply for. And instead, we created the water companies that are now huge entities, uh, nearly all owned by uh, foreign-based hedge funds in tax havens. I mean, this is bonkers. So when, as they happened three weeks ago, my constituents get flooded because a 36-inch main bursts, that main was 125 years old. Not very surprising that a pipe that's been there for 125 years has become a bit brittle. Mm. And so what happens? 40 houses get flooded, the roads get blocked, etc., etc. So you agree with prison sentences for water company CEOs if... I think community service would be far more yeah. effective. Community service repairing pipes. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's, it's, something, it's something which I find... I have no problem with those that work for Thames Water. They're nice people. They're good people. And they're decent, good engineers who are frustrated by a company policy which is directed solely by short-term profiteering. Well, that's the thing. If you if you look at the sort of water CEOs, like you said, it's between some earn 650 grand, some earn... Well, as low as that? Three oh. and a half million, yeah, they're really... It's you know, not worth getting out of bed for no, 650,000. No. That's before the bonus, so don't worry. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they make it up a bit It's later. not as bad as it sounds. Okay, thank um, God for that. I was worried. Yeah. I was going to start a collection. But you think they, they benefit... If, if somebody is making millions of pounds a year as the direct result of... What is illegal activity? A lot of this is illegal. So dumping water into certain rivers yeah. and stuff that's been established as criminal activity. If somebody becomes a millionaire of criminal activity, normally you'd think it's drug trafficking or you know arms dealing. No, it's Britain's privatised water industry. And yet and the political leaders don't really say much about it. In making rivers cleaner, that's brought back fish, that's brought back water voles, that's brought back beavers and everything else. That's all doing. It's, it's all been killed off. Do you think that? Do you think it's all going yeah. into reverse? Yeah. It's desperately going into reverse. And if they're allowed, last year there were 400,000 discharges into English rivers alone. Mm. Um, the minister very optimistically said they're going to be reduced, discharges are going to be reduced by a quarter over the next three years. So by 2025, there will only be 300,000 discharges a year. Well, the rewilding of our rivers cannot occur alongside sewage discharges. And so there has to be investment in a parallel pipe system. There has to be investment where you don't put foul water into clean water drains and all that. It does require investment. Are the water companies going to do that? No way. It's too expensive. And the only way you're going to do it is by public ownership and being prepared to use the income from the supply of water to every household in the country to invest in that infrastructure. We cannot go on just pouring crap into the rivers and the sea. Final question. And we end up eating it and drinking it. Did you know that? What's that? The, the, sewage. the discharge? Yeah. So how do we... So it's not because so there's the raw discharge into coastlines and yeah. rivers. So yeah. how does that come back into the fresh water supply? Eating fish. Right. Not good, is it? No. You're a vegetarian, that's okay yeah. for you. Yeah, well, let's, let's not be too grand about this, but it is terrible what is happening and it really has got to change. And so any of you out there that want to campaign on just one issue, 
public ownership of water. Water stands. We need a. We need p- young kids on TikTok talking about fresh water. Young, yeah. old, whoever. But you know. Yeah. When they when they uh, put in the manifesto in, uh, I think it was the eighty seven general election privatization of water, and they said there was going to be competition in it. I was doing a public meeting the day that was announced. I said, I can see the competition now. There's going to be three standpipes at the end of every road, one for Evian, <laughs> one for Evian water, one for Harrogate water, one for public water. It's ridiculous. Oh, it is bonkers. It's like buses. Can you imagine competition for buses? Oh, I won't get this one. I'll get the one after because it's got better Wi-Fi. Well, most of the country has that. Oh, it's I'm... only now beginning to be regulated. Yeah. London, we defeated bus deregulation in 1984 thanks to the work of um, the then uh, Tony Banks and others on the GLC. And uh, we, I was on the committee of the uh, Transport of London Bill and we defeated uh, deregulation of the buses in London. But most people want a convenient, affordable service. They don't exactly. want exactly a, regu- a fully regulated, yeah. hopefully publicly owned bus service. Final question on Liz Truss. Mm. So obviously you've been a parliamentarian for more than thirty years. Yeah, you've seen many Conservative MPs, yeah. leaders, prime ministers. Yeah. Where does she sit? Um, well, I know her a bit because I used to be on the Justice Select Committee with her. I think she uh, found it interesting. She was on a Justice Select Committee with a Liberal chair, Alan Beath, and the Labour members were Andy MacDonald, John MacDonald, and me. How, how did you find her? Well, um, I found her not particularly interested in the justice issues and not and didn't make any massive contribution to it. I was kind of surprised that um, she kept getting promoted to position after position and then ends up as Foreign Secretary under Boris Johnson and then becomes a leader. I think the result was interesting because all, all the media were predicting a much bigger majority where it was actually quite close in the end within the Tory party. Um, I think she has also, interestingly, done all her appointments as people that are closest to her and her only supporters. And so she's got a head head steam of opposition to her within the Parliamentary Conservative Party. How do you think her premiership will go? If you, if you were, I know it's a fool's errand to make predictions these days, but... Um, she will... Uh, try to get through the energy price crisis as quickly as she can. She will possibly use some Keynesian economics to um, get through the first few months and probably call an early election and then go straight into Mm. total free market economics. Her belief is in complete free market economics a la Margaret Thatcher. Um, But they also know that uh, the desperation of people at the present time, which is why the activities of all of us in um, Enough is Enough campaign, my own project for ju- peace and justice and so on, is so important that October the 1st be a huge day of action, there be a big demonstration and we bring together social justice, environment, trade union campaigns, all of those together because you know what, together we're actually very strong. We disempower ourselves by our isolation and our individualism. Jeremy Corbyn, that's a great place to end. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>